follow you more closely. Amen. Amen. I'd certainly be a little bit remiss if I didn't acknowledge uh, the importance in our culture of this weekend being the 4th of July. Um, there's an experience that the Israelites had while they were in exile and they were encouraged by Jeremiah with this instruction. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We're not in exile. It feels like exile sometimes. Um, But let's always be mindful to be praying for the country that we are in, for the land that the Lord has us in, for our governors, our rulers, our presidents, our vice presidents, all the way up and down the line, locally, regionally, nationally, uh, that the Lord would give wisdom, bring about repentance, and uh, create a culture in which Christians can have a gospel message to bring uh, until it pleased the Lord to do otherwise. Today, this message is the second of two sermons I'm delivering on the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, specifically the text of verses 20 through 26. Again, I will be referencing other verses from the chapter uh, and other chapters as well in John's Gospel, as well as some of his epistles, as they relate and add weight to the focus of what the church, again, has historically referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. So I'm going to read verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you are, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that may be one that they may be one even as we are one I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even even as you love me father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world O righteous father Even though the world does not know you, I know you in these that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love, which you have loved me, may be in them, and I in them also. We could throw, I believe there's another screen up there, yeah? I wanted to have the sovereign grace. Uh, Here we go. This is the Sovereign Grace mission statement. I want want you to read this with me. You don't have to stand, but let's read that together. Sovereign Grace Chapel exists to worship and glorify God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry, calling people to become disciples of the risen Christ, and caring for those in need as salt and light in this fallen world. Sovereign Grace Chapel maintains the gospel as of first importance, and the scriptures as the ultimate authority. 
We pursue Christ-centered unity and love and labor together with the Lord in the process of our sanctification. To God alone be the glory. I wonder how many of you just read that for the very first time. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) Well, how many of you were aware that we have a mission statement? That's on our website. And I've asked our audiovisual team to please leave that slide up there on the screen for the duration of our time together. For without the intercession of Jesus, this prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17, that mission statement is vanity and striving after wind. Without this prayer. Now last week I drew your attention to three features of this prayer that give us insight into what God was doing way back there on page one of the Bible. Revealing God's rulership of God's kingdom. And that's the framing narrative for the entirety of Scripture. God's rulership of God's kingdom. And with that in mind, the three features that I addressed are first, the purpose of Jesus' prayer here in John 17. Second, what it means to be an image bearer in God's kingdom. And third, how are we to understand what this oneness is that Jesus rehearses throughout the prayer? And as to the first, Jesus' determination in this prayer is that the God-revealing mission given by the Father to the Son, fulfilled by Jesus in His ministry, would continue in those whom Jesus sends. That's us. Until the return of Jesus to gather us to Himself. And that mission is image-bearing. To the second, an image-bearer is one that represents another in a variety of categories. We bear the image of the Creator and the Sovereign of the universe. We represent Him and have been endowed with the faculties necessary to rule over creation, to subdue, to multiply, to harness the potential God built into the creation as His vice rulers. Jesus is the only human to ever accomplish this. Though every human being, beginning with Adam, has been created for that purpose. And to the third, we discovered that this oneness about which Jesus prays is a term of relationship. A relationship in which the purposes, priorities, virtue, and holiness are held in common as a result of the inseparable, interlaced intimacy of the persons involved. And that oneness is missional. Therefore, Jesus is praying that the image-bearing mission would entirely succeed through His oneness with the Father and with those whom God gave Him, His elect, or as stated by Jesus in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent Me. That was last week in a nutshell. It took... 45 minutes and a much brighter shirt to get there. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Today I have two objectives. The first is to review the circumstances of this prayer. That is, what's going on in the ministry of Jesus in the Twelve? He surrounded with himself for three years. What was going on immediately before this intercession? And how does the prayer safeguard... The ongoing mission that Jesus carries out in the church through the disciples. Not only for the eleven, Jesus prays in verse 20, 
but for all those who will believe in me through their word. And that includes you, if you are a follower of Jesus. It also includes others who yet have come, not yet come to faith, but will come to faith through the ongoing mission of the church. One minute I go, I said three years with the twelve, I just mentioned the eleven. Judas, Satan entered his heart and he left before this intercession could take place because this intercession was not for Judas, the son of perdition. And then the second objective today is to challenge our Sovereign Grace Chapel body to examine in our individual and corporate witness evidence of this answered, prayed-for oneness. What we find is that the things that concern us about ourselves as faithful witness to God and God's rulership, His kingdom, His gospel, these things likewise were characteristic of the eleven that heard the prayer of Jesus. And just as his prayer was effectual for them, so too for us. Though there is work to be done. Jesus' prayer indicates that the things he taught need divine power to put into effect. Whoa, things just got loud. Just in time for this. Intercession precedes oneness. Intercession precedes oneness. Scripture informs us that Jesus prayed a lot. He would spend lots of time in solitude praying. And we don't know the content of many of those prayers that Jesus offered in his closet with the door shut. However, at key times, Jesus prayed aloud for others to hear. He prayed aloud at the tomb of Lazarus so that people would believe that the Father sent him. He's always desirous that the people know that the Father sent him. That's his mission. So naturally, he prayed often for it. He prayed loud enough in the garden of his agony for it to be heard and recorded. He prayed aloud before inviting his audience to come to him and receive rest. In those times, Jesus wanted his praise to be heard by others so that they could see him glorify the Father, so that they could learn something, so that they could take heart in something, take encouragement in something. In those times, Jesus prayed aloud. In this instance, perhaps Jesus knew that the eleven would be surprised by what he taught them in chapters 13 through 16. And that observing him pray would offer them assuring comfort and even highlight for them the gravity of what he taught and promised them as we have it recorded in those chapters. I find ten things in those earlier chapters, and there are probably more, but ten instances of Jesus' teaching, his promising, his commanding, all of which are coupled all of which are coupled to the prayer of John 17. So what he taught them in in 13 through 16, he he now latches on to a prayer in 17. And if we bear this in mind, we can also bear to examine ourselves in light of his sending us. For his sending is joined to his intercession. His sending is joined to his equipping. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo in the third century prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will, Lord, but grant what you command. 
John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. Each of the twelve no doubt secretly had that terrifying thought, could it be me? I should say each of the eleven, one already knew. Could it be me? Perhaps at times some of you have wondered if you could fall away or betray Jesus in some way. Jesus prayed this for the eleven and for you who are in Christ. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So if you are his, you will never stop loving him for you are loved by him. And those who are so loved by God are thereby privileged to return love to God. So you see that. So you see his love for you will continue to be the guarantee of your love for Him. A commandment. In chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you after washing their feet. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that the love with which you have loved me, again, may be in them and in them. Because, again, love from God generates love for God and for others. Jesus commands it. Jesus prays it. We are commanded to love with the same love with which he loved us. How's that going? Man. That is so... Uh, spellbindingly difficult to get our head around. Man, love one another as I have loved you. John fourteen three. Here's a promise that needs a prayer. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's a promise. That's a promise. The promise wasn't sufficient. Jesus had to pray for what he just promised. And he does so. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed that someday you and I will see his glory and the glory of the Father. That's going to take a prayer to get us there. Right? What a prayer. And, you know, the book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. This is a this is an ongoing intercession. This this prayer that was that was that was prayed this once just has this. It just is able to just carry forward. Here's a promise for the work of believers. A promise for our work. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And a promise to support, a prayer to support the promise, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. We need that, you, that oneness to be able to produce in us 
the effect that the works that Jesus did had on the audience to which he spoke and did when he did the miracles he did and said the things that he said. I am a believer in ongoing miracles, but also in just the works that we do. The works that we do. Some of those works take a miracle. Sometimes we need something just short of a miracle maybe to get us going. A promise of confident oneness. Confident oneness. In 1420 he says, In that day you will know that I am, my, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You will know that. You will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. We talked about knowledge last week. This isn't just a access to facts that inform us. It's access to facts that inform and shape us and transform us. And a prayer for that confident oneness. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, this is the mission again. Why the oneness? Why? So that the world will know that you sent me. That they will know that you are. That, you will, that all will know I am. A command. This, this one. A command to fruit bearing abiding in Jesus. <laughs> A command to fruit, bearing, abiding, or remaining. In John 15, verses 5 through 8, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Well, you know that's going to take a prayer from Jesus. Right? And that prayer really is this entire chapter 17. There's no one thing I can point to you that's going to bring about that abiding. It's, it's built into everything that we're talking about. That we would have fruit-bearing, abiding in Jesus. Oneness. Jesus teaches that the world will hate the disciples. John 15, 18. We know from the pen, the pen of Paul that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. We also know that this same gospel writer John in his first letter wrote, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions, possessions are the worlds that is passing away. Those things are from the world, and it is a world that is passing away. So the disciples will be hated by those that are enemies of God. And we talked about this last week, right? Since, since natural human hates God, he and she will express that hatred towards Jesus' people in a manner proportional with the degree to which a person bears witness to God or glorifies God. If they hate God, then the more you look like God, the more they're going to hate you. The more you image Him, the more they're going to hate you. Jesus tells them, and Jesus prayed consistently in this chapter and others that we would be one with him and with the Father. If the world hates you at times, then this prayer is answered in you. John 16, 1-3. Jesus teaches them that they will be persecuted. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. 
And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. You know, imagine hearing that from Jesus. Some of you will be killed because of your oneness with me and the Father, and now Jesus is praying for the oneness that will get them killed. <laughs> the Scripture does challenge us. They also heard Jesus pray that they would be kept from the evil one. That doesn't mean not killed. He does pray that, keep them from the evil one. Even though they would be taken out of the world, eventually that would hate them, he prays that they wouldn't be taken out of the world now. That's not his main prayer. My main prayer isn't that they escape this. My main prayer isn't that they get away from this persecution. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world. Well, we were here on a mission but that you would keep them from the evil one. And then in John 17, the 15th verse, we find that the evil one will not win them. He will not win them. Most of the eleven died for their testimony of the Word and Jesus. They died pretty ugly deaths, most of them. But the evil one does not have them. They are present with the Lord. The same assurance applies to the warning of Jesus in 1633 that in the world that hates God, you will have tribulation. In the world that hates God, you will have tribulation. And we experience that tribulation in different ways than they do, but we experience it nonetheless because we live in a world and a culture that is constantly trying to undo what the Lord is doing in us and is constantly challenging truth as defined by God and is making us, at times, fearful and amenable to being shape-shifted by the demands of a culture that go way back to the beginning of Genesis in an attempt to redefine male and female, made he them. Because the culture has done everything it can possibly do now, going back in far, as far in Scripture as they can. Let's get very back to the very beginning and undo. That's what we got to start. We got to start undoing it. They're not stupid. The devil, the enemy, Satan, the dragon of old is not stupid. Got to get back to the very beginning and undo the beginning. And that affects us. It affects us when we think about our children going to school. It affects us when we think about co-workers. It affects us when we think about young minds that are yet in a stage of learning and, 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 and subsuming in them and, and wanting approval and needing culture because we need culture. And they may not be believers yet. It is hard. That's a different kind of tribulation. And who knows whether, you know, how far that will go. But Jesus has overcome the world that hates God. Our oneness with God the Father and the Son by the Spirit's redeeming power is a world overcoming oneness. 1 John 5, 4 For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith is what overcomes everything that the world throws at us. Perchance you recall that during their last Passover meal together, John had leaned back 
against the Lord Jesus' breast to inquire who would betray Jesus. To imagine that scene, you must forget da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper and get it out of your head, where half of them look like bearded girly men eating and chatting. Don't they? In Jesus' day, when people ate together, they did not sit around the table like you and I. They reclined at table. They reclined at table. Greg, can I use you as a volunteer for a minute? Come on up here, brother. I just want to show you something. This is how they ate, okay? This is how they... Just come on up and stand for a minute, okay? So, so... Tables were rather low and they had cushions of a certain type or small couches where people would recline, right? And they would lean on the left elbow, just sort of reaching over their legs diagonal to the table, eating with their right hand. Okay? So, so come over here and do that for me. Would you get, just sort of, get down like that. Get down like this. Just like this. With your legs slightly out behind you. Alright? And so when they started talking about Jesus and how he's going to be betrayed, they wanted to find out this is what John did. He just leaned right back into the breast of Jesus like that. Leaned right back, thanks man. Just leaned right back into his bosom like that. Okay. He leaned down. It is comfortable. That's how they ate. It's like you sitting at home on your couch pounding popcorn while you're watching TV, right? Laying on that, on that side with the legs. That's how they, that was what, that's what it was like. So that's why I say you gotta get the, the picture of Da Vinci out of your head because it's very important there that you see what's going on with John Resting his head on the bosom of Jesus. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times in this gospel. The disciple who Jesus loved. And I don't think that means Jesus loved John any more than the other disciples. I've read various commentaries. The Lord loves all his people. But he had a special kind of intimacy with John. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, if, if memory serves me correctly, R.C. Sproul once commented that John, uh, that John never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. He just never got over it. That he, John, could be loved by Jesus. And so, more important than his name was the fact that he was a beloved disciple. You ever feel that way? It's more important than his name. So he refers to himself as the beloved disciple instead of John or me or whatever personal pronoun. Sadly, our God-hating culture has hypersexualized the word love, such that it can almost generate an awkward feeling to think of intimacy between men like we see with G- Jesus and John, or, or with, with David and Jonathan. They had a special intimacy, you recall. Jesus, uh, uh, David loved Jonathan. He had greater love for him than he did any woman. And there are those that out there will say, well, there's evidence for homosexuality in the Bible with absolutely no regard for context, no, no regard for... Co- nothing! Right? But there's that intimacy. And, that, and that's regret- re- very regrettable. So we always need to gird up the loins of our mind with the rich biblical meaning of terms. Otherwise, the linguistic gymnastics of our postmodern society will give rise to intellectual and theological chaos in you. John is the only disciple that records this prayer. And it's surely no coincidence 
that he would capture that distinct oneness that Jesus recites so many times. In chapter 1 of this gospel, John writes, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, hath declared him. Jesus in the bosom of the Father, John in the bosom of Jesus. I wonder if John heard Jesus' heartbeat when he leaned against his bosom. I wonder if he listened for it. I wonder if John, when he saw Jesus bleeding out on the cross, thought of the sound of that pulse as Jesus' throbbing heart pumped redemptive blood out of his wrists and his head and his face and his back and his feet. Is it any wonder that John would emphasize such loving oneness with God? And here's one more thing to blow us away in this text. Just before Jesus, just before Jesus entreats the Father for oneness in this prayer, he tells the disciples back in 1632, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. I'm leaving you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. You're going to have tribulation. And you're going to abandon me. That's what they just heard for about an hour or so. Your entire reality is going to be flipped upside down. Then Jesus prays this prayer for oneness after telling them they're going to be scattered and each go to his own home. Because it takes a kind of intercession from Jesus to do something about that scattering that was going to take place. And don't fear to use your imagination when you read the Scripture. It's, it's part of meditating on what you're reading. Obviously, you have to fence your imagination in with, with the truths presented. right? You don't, want to, you don't want to imagine things that end up compromising what is revealed as true. But for three years, the disciples have been with Jesus. Heard His teaching. Saw Him silence the religious authorities. Saw a Roman centurion tell Jesus he's not worthy of having Jesus come into his home. Rome, who presented such a problem to Israel. The disciples got to see a Roman centurion of high rank say to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. They witnessed many miracles. They watched Jesus stand up in the boat and silence the storm. They also learned Jesus doesn't need a boat. He can walk on water. Imagine their shock at the things Jesus just told them. He had informed them several times during his sort of rabbinic style teaching that the Son of Man must be put to death by sinners and will rise again three days later, but they had no, they had no religious or intellectual category for that statement. Their training in Old Testament Judaism didn't provide that. Because you know they missed it, right? But this is why the, this is why Jesus was so surprised when he was teaching the disciples on the road to amaze it. Oh, you have little faith and slow to believe. All that was written about me by the, 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 the law and the prophets and the, and the teaching. And, and, and There was no religious or intellectual category for a resurrection three days later. That was for the end of the age. What are you talking about, Gentiles are going to kill? What are you talking about? Imagine also, though, how this prayer was their regular consolation after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the Father's amen to this prayer. And when they were persecuted, and when they were hated, and when they felt temptation to divide over some other matter, 
when they missed Jesus so desperately, this prayer won the day. And for two reasons. Two reasons that really capture the interplay between the divine and human participation in God's rulership of His kingdom. The prayer from Jesus was necessarily effectual. It could not be otherwise. John the Apostle, this John, wrote in one of his epistles, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we asked of him. Jesus' prayer was always in accord with the Father's will, thus this prayer was 100% effectual to bring about the desired effect. It could not do otherwise. And that effect is oneness, that bears unique witness to the Father sending the Son, kept in the name, protected from the evil one, seeing the glory of the Father of the Son, and empowered, as we know from John 15, by the Holy Spirit. That's what this prayer must do, and has done, and will continue to do. That's the divine part. And we have the human part. We have the human part, which is faith. It is trust. It is confidence in God as He renews the image of God in us. It's crucial that we digest this truth fully as we move to examine our individual and corporate witness because we don't always like what we find. We can easily collapse under the weight of our own scrutiny if we don't put this protective suit of the gospel on first. You do not go where you need to go sometimes without the gospel. Do not begin self-examination without first preaching the gospel to yourself and preaching it to yourself again when you're done. Because if you ask God to show you things, He's going to show you things. Always remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. When we come face to face with our failings, when we realize there are new opportunities for fuller participation in the gospel, triune oneness, we, like the original hearers of this prayer, find fresh strength and hope returning to this prayer. See, God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the writers of the Bible to communicate foundational truths in a manner as diverse as the individuals inspired. We hear the same thing in different ways so that it sinks in deep and so that we don't miss it. I hope by now you understand what it means to be God's image, what it means to be made in God's image. Image bearers are also those who are a light to others. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. We tell others what wonderful things God has done for us. Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, being blessed with every spiritual blessing. We who once were darkness, but are now light in the Lord. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. works. This is the variety of ways that our imaging God is presented throughout the Word. That's how we image God. All those things I just mentioned. But let's settle on a single text for now to examine ourselves by, one that really sums up everything we are as God's oneness image-bearing disciple-makers. We are God's oneness image-bearing disciple-makers. 
First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Such a proclamation, which is a fusion of words and deeds, only succeeds with this prayer Jesus prayed for oneness defines us. Only where that defines us, only where that shapes us, only where that's effectual in us, does that come to pass. Only then do we have the voice, the deeds, the the, everything about us that may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are at times best a fuzzy picture. I don't know what it is about our home. I do know what it is about our home. We live on a road that's very busy with traffic. We constantly have to put the words on the television. Because there's just noise going by. I can't hear the television. Our proclamation is like that. Our proclamation of the, of, 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 of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light is like that. Owing to, owing to the challenges still before us. To yet be overcome by the gospel in us. By this oneness. So, so let's go idol hunting. Because idolatry is what corrupts oneness with God. Your God-assigned role in your family, in our church, in your job, in your leisure, your friendships, your activism, your money, your speech, your ministry involvement. Do we, in all these areas, proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light? Because we're not doing that on Sunday, but everything else the rest of the week. Excellency proclaiming goes on all the time. Or should. I'm speaking to the holy nation, to the royal priesthood before me. That little corner of God's kingdom known as Sovereign Grace Chapel. Those people. Has Jesus' prayer, has the prescribed oneness of God killed the idols in your heart that dim the light of witness and compromise the message of the Father sent me and I send you? Does it? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Jesus gave himself up for her, the church. Have you ever prayed that you would know what that means in your relationship to your wife? Lord, help me to know how I can image that relationship that you have with your church that you gave yourself up for. How I can image that. Well, if you don't consider her counsel and her wisdom and listen carefully in times of disagreement, if she doesn't know you for that, if she doesn't know you as a man that will do that, then she doesn't know that you're someone who will lay her life down for her. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If she doesn't know that about you, then she doesn't know you as one that would lay down your life for her. Do you make time for her? Not leftover excess time, but time that requires a sacrifice. Wives, do you truly submit to your husbands as unto Christ? Would you dare say to Christ what you just said to your husband? Do you see this man that God has placed in your life to be one with? Do you treasure the opportunity to submit as unto Christ? Because it is an image-bearing activity. Or do you resist at every opportunity? And do you complain Do you nag? 
does your body language communicate domination rather than submission? Do you have to be right? Not do you want to be right, because we all want to. Do you have to be right? How important is your activism? Our mission statement includes the recognition that we are here as salt and light in a fallen world, deeply infected with the virus of sin, loaded with symptoms that we can treat, even though we don't get to give the cure. We can treat in a lot of ways. So be active in pursuits of biblical justice and peace and feeding the hungry and speaking for the unborn. But be very careful here. How much hatred do you feel towards people that see you involved in the people that you see involved in the disintegration of humanity? Because we see it all the time. We're in a culture where there are people that are intimately involved in the disintegration of humanity. But do you mock them? Do you spread jokes about them? Do you resend memes that overexpose the fallen nature of a poor sinner? There was a time when Jesus said of Herod, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Go tell that fox. So there's a place and a time to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness and to appropriately label unrepentant wretches who consistently suppress truth and unrighteousness to the hurt and degradation of our common humanity. There was a time for that. Only let it be righteous exposing, illuminated by oneness with the light of the world. Do you pray for your community and your country? And does your involvement proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light? I will tell you, I found a huge 90-foot Nebuchadnezzar idol in my own heart in this area. A 90 foot, well the biggest idol we ever read about in scripture. Right there. And I, it wasn't a surprise to me. I knew it was there for years. Until it got finally big enough that it was poking out of my shirt. So how are you doing at work? Do you join the chorus of voices complaining about the way things are done there? with people who do not know Jesus, who are alienated from the life of God. Are you entering their darkness rather than bearing witness to the life that is the light of humankind? What are you bringing to your ministry in the body here? Do you see yourself as part of a larger whole with an awareness of how blessed you are to bring what, you, what are your obvious gifts to the benefit of others and the glory of God? Or does your gift and priority become the driving and defining principle of your involvement? There are things you don't like about the church. That's understandable. We're all human, and we're limited to the side of glory. It's that simple. No surprise there. We don't have to pretend. But does your consternation about the song selection linger into Wednesday? What about the worship service might be agitating you and distracting you from the object of your worship? 
What idol are you bringing into the worship service or the small group or the Bible study with you? What idol are you bringing? Are you asking those questions about that idol before uncompromisingly deciding the church must change on this or that? Have you had that discussion with yourself first? I was watching a series on one of the streaming services this week, and I was watching it, and I asked myself, does my decision to watch this show reflect oneness with God? Is what I'm processing in my mind as I'm watching this an indicator of I in you, you in me, us in them, as Jesus prayed? I had no intention on asking myself that question. And, and will it promote my understanding of this blessed oneness, or will it stunt my spiritual growth? I'm no longer watching that show. And may we dare to pursue the question as to whether the oneness Jesus prayed for is proving to be an answered prayer in our individual lives, in the corporate or body life of Sovereign Grace Chapel, if the subject is money. Can you look at your pattern of supporting our mission financially with the satisfied eyes of oneness with God in his mission to make himself known and to rule his kingdom. You know, your money is part of that, you know. Like the rest of you. As, as one of your elders, I, I do not look at church offerings. It's none of my business. I don't know who gives consistently and who does not. I wouldn't want to know. None of us elders do. The Lord saw the widow put her penny in the collection box. And it is enough to know that he knows the financial stewardship of each of us. Having said that, our treasurer regularly reports our giving versus our goal, and it is down persistently. I hope you see those figures. They're in the bulletin. They might be in there this week, but they are in there occasionally. Does the consistency and frequency with which we give demonstrate financially that Christ is in the Father, that the Father is in Christ, and that we are one with them, and they are in us so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son? Based on a summary of giving patterns prepared by our treasurer, again, no, no names or anything like that, just little charts and things, we cannot conclude that all give some and some give all. Do we believe that the Lord loves a cheerful giver? We have a shared mission up there on the screen. One that expresses our collective joy in fulfilling the great commission of our Lord Jesus to make disciples of the nations. If you're not giving consistently something, you must ask yourself why. There is, not maybe, there is an idol in your heart. God, the idol killer, will help you kill it. Now it doesn't take a whole lot of spiritual calculus to know that the formula for the health of the body here is the sum of the health of the individual parts. We are all to practice self-examination because we bring what we are to the corporate worship experience. The Apostle John received revelation from Jesus regarding the seven churches of the area that is modern Turkey today. 
For various reasons, Jesus warned that he would remove the lampstand, the witness of the church, owing to their failure as a collective to be the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the peculiar people. You see the the consistent theological emphasis of John? They did not project that oneness that bears witness to the mission of God, which is bound up in the love of God, which is in us as a major ingredient of the oneness about which Jesus prays in John 17. The reasons were idolatry, sexual sin, lack of love for Christ and His people, the things I am charging us to search our own hearts for. And my point is not that we're in danger of Jesus removing Sovereign Grace Chapel. Not at all. God has blessed this body in so many ways. And there is evidence of oneness that makes disciples of the nations. My point is that the measure of our individual participation in this spiritual oneness is consequential to our collective spiritual oneness. Our individual oneness has a bearing on our collective oneness. And I, I implore each of you and me, do not miss out on the rapturous extremes yet to be known by this joining of us to Christ and Christ to us and us to the Father and the Father to Christ and us into one another. And however many ways John tried to exhaust the language to talk about oneness, there are yet extremes of rapture to be experienced as we grow in this but not with, not with self-examination left unattended. And you are not left to yourselves. This church has the spiritual power and the giftings to come alongside you and whatever you find challenging in your spirit, whatever ails you if there is anything. Oneness doesn't just happen. Yes, Jesus prayed for it. And yes, we co-labor with him in our prayers and Bible study and fasting and meditation and all the so-called spiritual disciplines to enter into the fullness of his joy. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And he, he draws us into that joy. And that joy set before him was the redemption of God's people as the perfection of his God-bearing mission. His God-image-bearing mission. A mission that continues in us until the appointed day of His return. Do you see that? All the things that make for compromised oneness in us. Jesus addressed one way or another in this prayer that followed the instructions and promises He gave the disciples at that Last Supper. He prayed that our fruit remains. He prays that we're kept from the evil one. He prays that the threat of death and persecution will not impact our soul security, which he purchased with his own blood. He prays that we will know the Father's love, even as he loves us. If we get that, everything else falls into place. If we get, if we get that the Father loves us as much as he loves the Son, Jesus, everything else will fall and fall into place. And, and the, and the little idols hiding out in the corners of our hearts will suffocate from lack of oxygen. John wrote in his letter to the church, Behold what manner of love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God. There he is still shocked at that love. And that goes for right now. And that goes for any time you, you, you find you may have grieved the Spirit or you feel animosity towards someone else or you, or you bump into some little ugly idol in yourself. The goodness of God which flows from his love leads to your repentance. There's just nothing to fear. There's just nothing to avoid. There's just nothing to ignore. God teaches us through nature, if we watch. Just off our back porch in one of my wife's lovely gardens is this fern plant in a pot that she has on this, this pedestal. And in that fern plant, a small bird made a nest there with four little birdlings in it now. And I've observed two things about this bird. 
It's the loudest bird in the yard, and yet it's the smallest. It's a species we have not had in the past that I can recall. And that's the first thing. The second thing I have seen is that without exception, this little bird carries out its mission with an uninterrupted exactness and focus. She must carefully get food for those little ones, and she must come and go undetected by potential predators. That's her mission. That's her mission. When she comes back with food, sometimes she approaches from one angle, and sometimes she approaches from another angle. Every so often, she lands about 15 feet away in an adjoining garden and carefully hops under the porch stairs. And then she hops around the base of these other plants, never taking a direct path to the nest, as if she's constantly, consciously tricking her enemies into thinking she's just goofing around out there, all the while making certain they don't figure her out. That little bird is tireless, tireless in her mission and the degree to which she takes nothing for granted. She doesn't get distracted by the monotony of repetition. She keeps going. She just keeps doing what works. And that's a valuable lesson there. Now we're going to celebrate our oneness. In some small measure, we're going to replay the scene of John 13 through 17. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we'll share in the bread and the juice, the emblems of the broken body and shed blood of the Savior, that he poured out in his mission to make known the Father and the Father's purpose of sending his Son as we by the one Spirit proclaim his death until he comes again. If you've not repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then this remembrance of the Lord's suffering and death is not something you're likely interested in. And you should just let the bread and juice pass you by until such a time as you say, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. But if today you are repenting and believing for the first time, then by all means, you don't need to understand the doctrine and theology of the supper. Simply take and eat and drink because his body and blood was for your sake. Now some believers live under the misconception that if you're wrestling with some sin or temptation and having trouble with it, then you cannot partake. I'm begging your pardon. That is a little like saying, I can't jump into the pool because I'm too hot. Contrite sinner. Partaking in this meal is a way of preaching the gospel to yourself. And the gospel is the only power to break that stronghold. So preach to yourself with the elements this morning. The only ones that eat in an unworthy manner are those who are deliberately and intentionally working against the oneness that the Lord Jesus Christ prays about. So we're going to have our four brothers, brothers, sister, come forward to begin to distribute the elements as I, I will first pray. And then also, while we are distributing the elements, I have a song that I'm going to have played in the background. And so the song, being about five minutes, is likely to sort of go beyond the time that it takes to get the elements. If you can suffer in silence for a few moments, and then when the song is over, we'll, we'll go with the elements of that. So... If we could have the brothers come up here, please, and then uh, I will pray while you're all gathered around me up here at the table. Go ahead. Let's pray. 
We thank you, our Father, for the life which you have made known to us by Jesus, your Son, by whom you've made all things and take care of the whole world. You sent him to become man for our salvation. You allowed him to suffer and to die. You raised him up. You glorified him and have set him at your right hand. And in him you have promised us the resurrection of the dead, Father. O Lord Almighty, eternal God, gather together your church from the ends of the earth into your kingdom as grain was once scattered and now has become this one loaf. Our Father, we also thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ which was shed for us, for his precious body as himself appointed us to proclaim his death for through him his glory is to be given to you forever and ever. Amen.
they were eating. <clears throat> Jesus took bread, and after blessing, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, at that same meal, the Lord Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus till he comes again in glory.